I was always curious growing up why it seemed like a lot of people would say things they didn't really mean and they looked like they had something else on their mind. So I was inordinately curious. And so asking questions was a way I learned not only about them, but about myself. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a very exciting guest today. Kari Anderson is an Emmy-winning former NBC and Wall Street Journal reporter, now connective behavior speaker and columnist for Forbes and Huffington Post. Anderson's TED Talk on the web of humanity, Be an Opportunity Maker, has attracted over 2 million views. Her clients are as diverse as Salesforce, Novartis, and the Skoll Foundation. She's a founding board member of Annie's Homegrown and author of Mutuality Matters, Moving from Me to We, Getting What You Want, and Resolving Conflicts Sooner. Anderson also serves on the advisory boards of the business innovation factory, Glooped, and TEDx Marin. As David Rockefeller Jr. said after hearing her speak, Kari forever changes the way you see yourself and your world. Kari, welcome to the show. It's an honor to be here, Dr. Richard. Outstanding. Thank you so much. I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about your past, which came out in your TED Talk. You mentioned how when you were a youngster, you were diagnosed as, and I'm quoting, phobically shy and that you stuttered. And yet in the bio that I just read, you're an Emmy-winning reporter. How does one go from the stutters and the shyness to being a reporter, which involves skills, which would essentially be the opposite of what you described? <laughs> well, one thing I learned was it's harder to overcome something. It's easier to supplant something with a greater motivation. And I was a daydreamer growing up. I don't know why I stuttered, which I did all the way through my junior year in high school. But how it stopped was when a friend of mine got hoarse and he was going to stand up for a cause I deeply believed in and said, Kari, you've got to go up there across the stage right now and do it. And he pushed me. And uh, we both felt so strongly about it. It was about how prisoners were being treated in a prison. And I stood up and I just really spoke passionately and started crying Sounded rather fierce, I was told afterwards. But when I got off the stage, he says, hey, friend, you didn't stutter. But it's something that reverted back several times till over time it just went away. And my high school um, English teacher, who I will forever be grateful for, said, Kari, you never talk. You answer in monosyllables when I ask you. So I think you should be signing up for the school newspaper. (laughs) 
<laughs> you can ask people questions. People tend to want to talk, and you then would get off the hook and not have to say much. And she started me on the path. I'm so grateful for her. It's amazing. So it was a high school teacher that really put you down that road of becoming a journalist. She was one of the first on that path, yes. When we look back on our life and we realize what was it that brought people into our life that were so magnificent and helped us. She was one and my bureau chief uh, for the Wall Street Journal in London I met because he spoke for one year at Stanford as a professor. And after one class, he looked at me and fingered me to come over. And I said, yes. He said, you asked so God how many questions. What do you think you're doing with your life? And I started stuttering again. <laughs> he said, well, um, I want to coach you because I think there's a pattern there. So he wound up hiring me later on. I look back on my life at that and say, he, when I worked for him, said, you ask so many questions, you barely get back to finish the story I assign you on deadline. But, you know, if other people ask those questions the way you do, they might get slapped in the face. So here's where I think your talent could be, or at least one of them. He said, write up the story, please, on time. Then take notes on those other things you asked them. Maybe later on when you're doing another story, you can get some angles from what they said that will give an unexpected other perspective to that story. That's why gratefulness is so much a part of my life. Thanks, Dr. Richard. I've been thinking about him today because he just passed away last week. Oh, wow. I'm sorry to hear that. Yes, yeah, so, so am I. So what would you say was the biggest lesson that he taught you? I mean, he coached you, he trained you. What was the biggest thing that you took from him? That the capacity to tell someone about a talent they have that they're not aware of, that's wonderful. I was always curious growing up why it seemed like a lot of people would say things they didn't really mean and they looked like they had something else on their mind. So I was inordinately curious. And so asking questions was a way I learned not only about them, but about myself, especially, and I think this is universally true, Dr. Richard, it's that we're all wired to have hot buttons, things that really irritate us or cause us to react, and things that we just adore and are drawn to. And until we learn how we're wired, we're reactive in life. And this is a disruptive time, and it's going to continue. I'm sure people felt that in the past. So it's important to see, I think some of the biggest jerks in my life have been the path by which I learned about myself and maybe found a way of accepting them and even civilly disagreeing, but having a relationship with them. So that's been the path that I look back on that's mattered to me and does today. Wow. And how long? Did you go down that journalistic path? How long were you doing the reporting before you evolved into what you're doing now? Well, I worked on daily papers like the Sacramento Bay, and then I got to lunch over the Wall Street Journal as an intern, and then in London doing backup reporting all over Europe and culture. So it was like, and then came back and unexpectedly got to do an NBC magazine at the air show. So a decade ago, a speaker bureau guy told me um, when he heard me in conversation, I think you could be a good speaker. And my friends cracked up laughing when he said that. And I said, frankly, I'm not interested. I like to be an interviewer. He said, there's money in it. So I said, tell me more about it. And that's how the transition happened. And then 
In terms of the speaking, obviously you're most well-known for your TED Talk, which millions of people have viewed. How did that manifest? How did you end up giving a TED Talk? Um, I'm often asked that, and the person who found me would not tell me how she did. Her name's Juliet Blake. She's high in the TED structure. She creates um, documentaries, the 100-foot journey movie she co-produced. But when she interviewed me via video, she was one of the most intuitive people I ever met. She said, here's how I see you, because I did a TEDx Berkeley talk, also an accident that someone introduced me to doing. She says, I think here's your blind spot. Do you think that could be true? And she talked about how um, I, I had no sense of direction. And I said, well, I'm wired that way. I have a double helix brain. And she said, I thought it was something that was brain-wise. And then she asked a couple more things, and I started crying because she was so insightful. But I didn't want to show it or speak about it because it looked like I was sucking up to her for being so intuitive. And she said, you're crying, why? And she said, you know, we are going to have you on TED. It was a, a life changer. Of the speeches I do, I like speaking in front of people who um, work in high-stakes situations. Often have to think on their feet, and those are like trial lawyers and um, surgeons. You know, one in forty is difficult for other people to be around. And I thought if I can give speeches to that group, because they're the kind that'll get up and casually walk out if it bores them, and I can make them all see the better side in themselves and how to communicate to connect, that would feel like a thrill to me and worthwhile. And it also, the meeting planners, it turns out, when they find someone who can keep those kinds of people's attention with actionable insights, it helped make it more invitations. So again, facing that kind of audience and making it real and granular, but not attacking them, just suggesting ideas about how to pull others in, bring out their better side. You don't have to castigate people. You can just make a light bulb come on to say, well, that I could see myself doing that. I think I'd like that. One of the things that you said, Kara, you mentioned communicating to connect. Could you talk more about that? Yes. I started tracking some of the researchers on human behavior. And I must say, it's such a popular topic now. Some of the conclusions drawn from studies are overreaching. But I was able for four years through No Mirror Securities, to get paid to bring 15 of my favorite researchers together, uh, interview them together, and facilitate a discussion so they could see how they could learn from each other. And that jump started me on getting the background. So more specifically, everything from women tend to stand and face each other when they talk. Men tend to sidle more or less side by side. And in fact, we get along better when we sidle rather than facing each other consistently. Um, and that's true when being around oval tables and round tables rather than long and rectangular. In fact, juries that have long rectangular tables tend to not be as wise as those with a round one because yeah. the jury chair leads it. But also a warm face, what's called a Q factor in TV, in other words, likability, which has nothing to do with decency or smarts. The man who does um, dirty jobs, uh, he's had the highest rating. Michael Rowe, I think his name is. Everybody just looks at him and warms up. Well, that's a slightly elevated eyebrow. It's not a wide grin all the time. 
So gathering together some of those specifics has been a life journey and a constant relearning process for me. So what you're describing, Kari, is essentially nonverbal behaviors as what you're talking about as part of this connective communication, but different ways that they can influence the way that we are able to communicate with each other. Yes, but there's also ways, I believe the key word is specificity. Once we get specific, we gain greater self-clarification and people listen sooner. So specificity not only increases clarity, but credibility and memorability. There's also something I call triangle talk. We tend to talk about ourselves more, first of all. But if you first address someone else's interests, confirm that is of interest to them. Suggest a way that your interests coincide. You seek a sweet spot of mutual interest sooner, and there's more likelihood that you'll get along. And also towards the notion of quotability for connection, I call it speaking so it's almost as vital as air, A-I-R. Make your communication actionable, some insights or action they can take, and make it have interestingness, the A-I. And then R is, is there something that they can do as a result? How relevant is it? How relevant? So those are some ways that we can connect with other people. Also, when you speak to someone's better side, you're more likely to um, evoke that behavior in them. Actionable, interesting, relevant. So those are the three things in in your acronym AIR, and it makes a lot of sense. And one of the things you spoke of in your TED Talk, and I'm sure this leads right into that, is that mutuality mindset. Is that what this AIR is relating to? It is in a way, because especially the you, us, me, triangle talk. And when I address someone else's interests first, they can't help but listen um, because it's about something familiar, them. Um, There's a man, uh, Peter Guber, who wrote a book where he said, give um, purposeful narratives. Tell the story that other people can see a role they want to play in it. So they adopt it, reshape it, and share it. So I think mutuality is sort of like what you're talking about is, I love it, the daily helper. Some people help in a way that is clear they don't understand you and haven't learned much about you. So I think one way in mutuality is to be a helpful helper, to actually do something. And one of my best signs of mutuality is when someone helps you before you knew you needed help and before you even knew sometimes that that person could help you. So those are ways, and it's not a quid pro quo. Mutuality is an ebb and flow of mutual support over time. That's why I'm such a fan of Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. Um, When you bring out the best side in other people, they're more likely to see and support yours. And in this disruptive world with a law of unintended consequences that's increasingly becoming the norm, not the exception, one of my favorite things is the rule of three. Three unexpected allies taking a specific stand on a cause and involving bragging rights where other people feel good and look good sharing that. That's one of the priceless ways that I think we can do something for some cause or some stance rather than just being against it. You mentioned the law of unintended consequences. Kari, could you speak a little bit about what that is? I believe as it becomes an increasingly connected technological world, 
Every technology has an upside and downside. I felt that the first time I heard about drones and it's becoming true. And so that means we can all be called upon to cultivate relationships with people who have different talents and sometimes even temperaments than us. So that when we see something that's important to us, they may feel comfortable enough hearing from us about, hey, I think we share a common interest. Would you take a stand with me on this? I think if so-and-so joined us, the three of us would be so unexpected. It goes back to interestingness. That's been a seminal part of my life the last 20 years, that rule of three, because there's something so thrilling about three people, and I coach others to join forces to do it as well as doing it myself. It just startles people. It gets their attention, and money can't buy that, and it builds credibility as well. It's something you mentioned in the TED Talk, of course, the value of having diverse allies. Yes, and that means that we have to um, be specific with our own values, find ways when we listen that we try to follow up and don't assume that we uh, understand what the other person said, but ask follow-up questions and confirm it. And to say, may I tell you my, why my vo- uh, views differ? To use uh, non-emotion-laden words, to deeply listen. I believe in the power of follow-up questions and having threads to a conversation and having civil disagreements so you build candor. Um, These are all things that I think are going to be increasingly important. And those who become opportunity makers, they're the ones that have those diverse allies. And if they see an opportunity or problem with the right people, they can forge the right team to solve a problem or seize an opportunity uh, better and faster than others. And those are the people I admire, like Larry Brilliant, Bala Afshar. There's people that I've met in my life. When I keep meeting some of the people who admire them, they say, I think you two should meet. This is why. I may be wrong, but I think it's worth your time. They're not just saying, hey, I like you both. They're giving me a specific reason, and I want to do the same for them. Hey, guys. Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. I love what you're saying, Kari. And certainly you mentioned these times, you've mentioned a couple of times how challenging these times are right now. One of the things that whether you're on the left or the right, probably everybody would agree with, is that we as a society have never been more polarized. And it seems as though the dialogue between people with dissenting ideas is decreasing with time and people are becoming more dug in with their heels and their respective positions. So what would you say to an individual or a group that has a mindset regardless of ideology or political affiliation, but they're very much entrenched in their ideas, how can they shift to your perspective and find middle ground with somebody that they not only feel that they have nothing in common with, 
but in fact, uh, probably have some sort of enmity or hostility towards? That's a very good question. I believe it starts with not just reacting against something, but saying, um, what's an alternative that offers a brighter, more just conclusion? rather than, quote, just attacking someone. And who else might share that view of this specific positive alternative for a law, for a ritual, for an organizational's mission? I think those are the people that will get the attention. But that also means that our specific language for something specific is more vivid than just saying we don't like someone. Some of the best writing that I see is saying, here's why these actions that they are advocating, if they happened, would be dangerous or uh, uneconomic or whatever the reason are. But I also believe and then cite some ways that you may agree with them where possible. But the main thing I'll say is finding sort of like when you're looking at two Christmas trees and one of them you don't like because of the symbols on it. Well, then build another Christmas tree that is even more alluring and bigger and brighter and pulls people's attention. I just realized that metaphor off the top of my head is not appropriate because it's innately Christian for some. And I'm looking for things where if you're going to draw people's attention, make them proud to participate being for something. Right. But but I think the point, if I heard you correctly, was to draw someone's attention to a cause or something that they connect with emotionally rather than ideology or symbols. Yes, again, it's action. What action do you believe as an alternative? I think when we see other people coming up with something specific, productive, and more just, citing those is one way we can support that kind of approach being emulated. So again, to to steal your book's title, Mutuality, and that mutuality matters. It does, finding the sweet spot. And I think, like anything else, I heard in Charleston, the mayor who'd been mayor for quite a while, and several pastors at the start of the Renaissance weekend speaking to us. And they said, you know, if we just gotten together after this young man went into the church and killed so many people, it wouldn't have been real for us to get together and decide what we're going to do that is the best path towards peace and justice. And, you know, um, he said, but we've been working together for over 20 years, and they're nodding. And I just burst out crying because they they were so congruent in their words and actions looking with each other. And I looked around my table, and um, everybody had tears in their eyes. I think it's so rare for us to see that kind of attitude and relationship uh, in action. It is true that, and they've done a lot of research on this, that it often takes something horrific to take place in our environment to, to bring people together. Yes, but it's wonderful when those people are already chosen to come together and they know their values and they trust each other and they trust each other to the degree that they've seen their past actions. And that's what I think we need. It doesn't happen overnight. No, no question about that. I, I wanted to ask you about something you mentioned in your TEDx and, and shift gears a little bit. There was a, a point in your TEDx talk where you were speaking about some anecdotal research you did yourself involving preemies in a hospital. Could you speak about that? Sure. I live in Marin County where there's a lot of Hispanics. 
And um, I was walking down the street in San Rafael one day, and I noticed, you know, there's a lot of well-to-do people in our area, a lot of white people. (laughs) And none of them were smiling as much or holding hands or just gesturing with each other compared to, there were three, I must say, in this busy night. But a majority of Hispanics I saw, there was warmth in their face. There was holding their kids. They were talking to each other. And it dawned on me, because I was doing a project for the preemie ward at Stanford Hospital, what would it be like to hire some of these women with their sweeping gestures and so on, curving motions, I call it, and just have them be present in the preemie ward and looking at the babies and responding to them, not touching because they wouldn't be trained for that. I look back, it's kind of a miracle. But for three months, they were there. They uh, were responsive and warm to the nurses in a way that was natural for them. They had a more musical voice than many of us who get more flat-faced affect as we get older. It's happening across the country. But um, after three months, it was striking. There was an increased recovery rate among the babies and several other side benefits. But one of them was when the the nurses were asked several questions, about 20, so we could bury some questions in it, they liked each other better and admired each other more. So there's something about the warmth of the face and curving motions of the hand and the body. There's something very primeval about that, Dr. Richard, that seemed to affect even preemie babies. It was amazing. You mentioned, that's really interesting, and you mentioned that there was some other side effects that were also positive. Out of curiosity, what were those? Well, the idea that the the strength of a relationship between the nurses went better. I do remember that I went to witness it one time and stood there for two hours looking through the window. And I couldn't tell for sure, except I noticed, oh, I remember some of the nurses were acting more like the observers. Their faces had changed. There was more warmth in their face. They were using more curving gestures and curving motions as they walked. How interesting. To your knowledge, as I, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with this particular research, uh, anecdotal as it was, has this ever been replicated, to, you, to your knowledge, on a larger scale? Well, funny you should say that. There are actually three hospitals right now that are doing it. And I will know in in two more months their results on it. But they saw videos because someone videoed part of it and it enticed them enough to want to see if they could replicate it. And this was essentially because you were walking down the street and you made observations about how some people seemed more warm and and happy than, than others. Right. Paul Ekman was a, a, one of the early researchers about lying and faces. And so ever since I did work with him, I, I just sort of noticed that. And if you did talk much growing up, you tend to stare at people more. That's really interesting. And, and again, you talk on your TED Talk about being an opportunity maker. What a great example of that. Yes, I think if we want a meaningful life that's more adventuresome, the opportunity to bring the right people together on an action that matters to them and be open to the notion that it isn't what they want and say, can we explore other ideas? I think that's, it's where I get the most joy in life. That's amazing because as you know, doing what brings you joy makes you more fulfilled than 
anything else and has so many benefits from a standpoint, psychologically, physically, it, it just in every way, shape and form, it flows through people and, and improves their life. Synchronicity. You have more opportunities that seem to fall in because people do things for and with you you would never expect and you wouldn't even known to ask for. I wanted to spend a little more time talking about opportunity making because it is so important. And I think it's something that anybody can utilize in their lives. You talk about three particular traits that opportunity makers possess. Would you mind sharing those with us? Sure. They're grounded enough in themselves that they're clear about their top mission in life. So it's I call it sideline glancing. As they look around, as they go through their lives, they're more likely to notice the resources they need. The people have complementary uh, temperaments and talents. And Things could seem to flow to them. That's how it feels, including when I get specific about my top mission to notice, my gosh, it's not that. It's five degrees to the left or it's completely different. But that self-clarity about a mission can enable you to be less reactionary to other people. And to look at some of the people that you find most difficult and say, what is it I need to learn about myself? And if there is a hot button where there's certain traits you really disrespect, How can I step away from those situations? So opportunity makers find ways that they can pull people closer. They can be helpful helpers. They can cite them. I think one of the best times to cite other people is when the the spotlight's on you. I mean, even when I give speeches, one of my greatest joys is working with the meeting planner about three people who might be in the audience who had certain traits that I was going to cite in general as tips and say, once they're seated, could you just point out without pointing your finger where they are in the audience? So then I could turn to another part of the audience at that part of the talk and say, just as some people have an extraordinary capacity to blah, 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 and then turn and look at the person like Tom does over there, as many of you know. And so giving people praise for something that they do really well in front of people who matter to him is one of the best ways to make it flourish. And then they're highly likely to not ever forget you. That's some of the traits that I admire. But I also believe in specificity, as I said earlier. It gives you a lot more clout when you can say things so vividly that other people um, hear you. And finally, bragging rights. When you do something that instills in other people the opportunity that they look good, feel proud, to use their best talents with others who are too, I think that's a sad thing in many large organizations in our world. The organizations aren't put together so people got to use their best talents on things that are meaningful to them. That's why I believe in intranets, intranets and companies where it's very transparent who gets asked for help, who's most helpful, and so on. Um, So it it reinforces us lifting up our bar of talent together with and for each other. You've talked about that top talent, which is the the language you use to describe this in your TEDx talk, but that people can find what their top talent is, which it sounds like, uh, if I understood you correctly, your top talent really lies in with your passion as well. That's what I took from your TED talk. Within that, what would you say to somebody who doesn't know what their top talent is? How do they find it? 
Oh, that's a great question. Marcus Buckingham wrote a book that's ostensibly for women, has a title I forgot. But he says, look at where the flow is. When you're doing something and everything seems to flow for you, you forget about the time. And you notice how appreciative other people are. You're probably doing something that's extremely beneficial and healthy for you. Just try to notice those moments and see what they have in common. And I think it's also good to notice it when other people say, you just lit up the last half hour. You were doing this, and every time you were working with people, they just were so um, enlightened and happy looking. I think that's such an interesting point. Where One of the things that I often see in psychology is that people are so focused. They, they might have done something amazing. They're so focused on the negative that they disregard all of the positive things that they've done. So you're talking about calling attention to other people's positive aspects, which may help them see it, even if they are not aware of it themselves. Oh, that's better put than I did. That, that's really well put. I, I heartily agree with that. I just think notion in this iPhone-related world to just look around and see and smell and hear and then when something catches your attention to notice why and see is there a role I can play that still supports them and what they're doing rather than trying to draw the attention to me. Because ultimately, that's the best way for you to get attention is being a supportive player. That's why I think uh, most valuable players are the ones that are the glue on a group. They're the ones that say, here's why I brought you each together. Here's the talent you bring to the goal. Is there a better goal? You know, anything they're doing that makes clear how perceptive they are of other people and why they're trying to involve them. One of the things that I can't help but think about is back to an episode I did with Melanie Greenberg. And Melanie spoke quite a bit about mindfulness. You're talking about mindfulness, not so much of oneself, although yes, but almost like a mindfulness of others. And in being mindful of others, that's helping connect, helping to find that middle ground, that mutuality, which is beneficial for everybody. I hope, Dr. Richard, you write a book sometime if you haven't already, um, because you're really good at characterizing this. Yes, I think true mindfulness helps us ground ourselves and be more self-aware because then we're less likely to project onto other people. And that groundedness gives us a sense of seeing the us in situations. And that's one of the biggest benefits for us and other people. And I know that when I've gone off track or I, I start thinking about me and what, what I'm doing only, I lose sight of the picture of the us in a situation. Um, I think being a journalist for so many years, I've talked about this with other journalist friends. You get so used to trying to see the situation, see their role in it, see other sides to that role. Um, and I think it's helped me uh, in other ways in my life. That's really awesome. And you mentioned the book, and I appreciated your words. I, I don't have a book yet, but stay tuned on that. But I wanted to talk a little bit about your book, Mutuality Matters. Or well, both of your books. So <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, those books. And if one of our listeners was to pull it down from Amazon today, what, what are they learning? What are they getting from that book? I tried to give actionable insights. And it's a two-part, there's two eBooks, Mutuality Matters and Mutuality Matters More. They think they're three or four dollars. But the notion is to think, 
What are specific ways that feel genuine and actionable where you can turn more situations into a possibility of a productive connection with other people? And I tried to talk about settings, behaviors we have, instincts to be reactionary, and so on. And then at the end, give it um, some summary tips as we went along. Again, the core part of mutuality is to know yourself well enough that you can step outside of yourself and try to see another person more clearly, their hot buttons and their talents, and speak to their interests first and have that as a mindset in life. I guess that's the best way I'd say if that appeals to you. I truly believe one of the side benefits is you pull in more adventure. More things can happen. Synchronicity happens between you and others you couldn't have anticipated. And I, I think it helps us not be bored, not be reactionary, and feel a natural sense of gratefulness about life. And would you say that your book is geared more towards people in business, or is this something that anybody could gain something from regardless of what they do? Um, no, I didn't mean it for people in business, but in their life. So it talks very personally about you as an individual. What is the role you play in the situation in your life now? Seeing it like a movie. Um, who are the people you want as other people in your life story? How do you want to change the scenes, for example? So it goes to all parts of your life because ironically, as some of the people that have written about living a full life, it's how one part of your life, your personal or social, helps your business or your work life and vice versa. So that's my attitude about it. Just speaking, uh, saying, okay, for me to live a more richer, meaningful life with others, what are some specific steps down that path? Outstanding. To let everybody know, we will have all of the links to these books on the Daily Helping app, as well as on our website as well. So we'll make sure that people have access to those books, most certainly. Thank you very much. You are really good at your sequential questioning, by the way. <laughs> Thank it, you. It made me start taking notes too. So that's my highest compliment because it's what matters most to me. I appreciate that, to be sure. And uh, Kari, we're getting near the end here. But what I want to do, as you know, I wrap up with a question for all of my guests to share their biggest helping. That is, if there was only one piece of information for somebody listening to this to take away, what would that be? I think the biggest thing I'd say is specificity is key to almost everything in life. I want you to think about what your highest mission in life is. And can you describe it in a way that's so concrete people get what you mean? Like right now, I'm working on specific prison reform and specific ways to get technology into refugee camps with technology companies so they can get the job training and food they need. And the second is specifically, what are your two to three hot buttons that cause you to be most reactionary? Then in doing those things, you're going to get a more clear view of what you want to do differently day by day in your life, who you want to pull in. All the rest will happen. Get specific sooner. The specific detail proves the general conclusion, but not the reverse. And that's true for yourself as well. I love that. That is so fantastic. Kari, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Kari, could you tell me where people can find you on the internet? Well, you can laugh, but it's sayitbetter.com. That's the website I set up a decade ago. 
And I'm honored to share some of my ideas on the blog post there. Okay. Say it better, all like S-A-Y-I-T-B-E-T-T-E-R.com. Yes, Dr. Richard. Uh-huh. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, we are at time today. Kari, thank you so much for coming on. This was a fantastic episode. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know them. Post it online with the hashtag MyDailyHelping or in the Daily Helping app. And remember that the happiest people are those that help others, which we've talked about for the last 40 minutes. And I know Kari agrees. Thank you, everybody. Until next episode.